Wonder Thing Studios proudly presents the Roundtable Podcast, episode 110. Alchemists, I'm Melanie Metters. And I'm Dave Robison. And you've tuned in to the Roundtable Podcast. On the Roundtable Podcast, we invite writers to come onto the show to pitch a story idea to us and <laughs> our esteemed guest host. And then we dive into it, tear it to shreds, and make the author cry. <laughs> Actually, we just look at it, explore it in a constructive way yes. as far as what works and what doesn't with the goal of transforming the raw idea into shining literary gold. Literary gold. The literary alchemy machine is in and on. Awesome. Yes. I don't think we've ever made a writer cry. Uh, (laughs) At least not on on air. (laughs) You know, they they might have hung up and went, oh my God, that was awful. But we've never heard about it. (laughs) Melanie Matters, thank you so much. It's it's a delight to have you in the co-host chair. Uh, it really is kind of a personal goal of mine to just really seek out the awesomeness in the world and podcast with them. And you have brought me that much closer to my ultimate goal. So thank you so much, ma'am. Oh, well, thank you for having me. Absolutely. You, you're a natural at this. You, you should do your own podcast. <laughs> Got your oh, answer. wow. Yeah, baby. Yeah, just saying. I'm just saying. But but look, let's 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 not uh, let's not bandy words. Let's get our guest host back in here and get down to the badassery that's 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 imminent uh, here at the round table. Friends, joining us uh, from a fabulous, awesome 20 minutes with of just seven days ago. I know the time just flew by. Please welcome back to the big chair here at the round table, Ada Paul. Uh, Ada, God, that was a great conversation. Uh, My mind is still (laughs) reeling from it, but I got to tell you, even more exciting for me is the prospect of brainstorming a story with you. Thank you so much for making the time. My pleasure. I've been looking forward. Aw, that, that's awesome. And I know you got grad students in the background. and, and uh, <laughs> They're okay. They have enough dictionaries. <laughs> <laughs> it's just the care and feeding of grad students. Give them dictionaries. They work. Awesome. Well, look, before we dive into this, uh, Ada, you know, researching your, your stalkerish intro was, was quite the exercise. I found myself Googling stuff that I've never Googled before, like, like Sigmund Freud's death instinct and, uh, you know, when exactly was the Enlightenment? and so on, which was a wonderful uh, uh, illumination for me, um, but it also kind of is indicative of all the things you've got going on. So when I ask this question, I, I am not unmindful of the, the, the potential length that may be coming from it, but uh, what is coming up in the world of Ada Palmer? Uh, the simple thing that's coming up is that the second volume of the science fiction series comes out in February. That's yes. Seven Surrenders. Seven uh, Surrenders. Excellent. Seven Surrenders. Awesome. And I've title. seen the cover reveal for that. It's gorgeous. Yes, I'm so happy that they got the same cover artist who did the first one. Also, if you have a if you have good lighting and a magnifying glass, <laughs> there are flags of the different political systems in the world just visible through the blue mist on the side of the Capitoline Mountain in the center of that image. It's actually lovingly detailed and, and accurate to the text in ways that are not very visible. 
I see uh, fan fiction it, in somebody's future. I, I, I see, or, or a derivative work that examines those flags in great detail. <laughs> so that's coming up soon, and I'm currently also polishing book three and working on book four, because book three is also finished, and book four is underway. It's a four-book series total. Okay. Um, and, and the series is so that, called Terra Ignota. Is that correct? Yes. Now, yes, I've, terra heard ignota. The, I've heard the term Terra Incognita. I'd never heard Terra Ignota before. What's the, what's the difference? So Terra, Terra Ignota is an unknown land. It's similar to Incognita, okay. uh, and and it's something that you would write in the edge of the on the edge of the map in a place that isn't known. Okay. Uh, and there are a number of different meanings that the book phrase has in the series, and it gains more over the course of the series. But particularly when approaching it, I found it interesting because if you knew there was a a science fiction work called Terra Ignota, you would expect it to be exploring some new planet or something. Okay. Uh, but in fact, this is real world Earth only a few centuries in our future. But it's an unknown land to us because culture changes. And I think one of the essential aspects of history is that every few centuries we remake human society so much that if you brought someone from the past to the present, the people they found themselves surrounded by would be more alien to them than any aliens Star Trek ever made up. So this is an unknown land to us, the readers who are being brought into it because it is far enough in Earth's future that the world is different. Outstanding. Outstanding. The Seven Surrenders, the next in the series that started with To Like the Lightning, uh, a second book in a four-book series of the Terra Ignota uh, saga. Outstanding. Uh, any other work? Any any uh, music coming out from Sassafras? Any any other yes, projects? Uh, Lauren, Lauren and I are... In the middle of finishing up another CD of trying to bring back into print a number of my earlier pre-Viking project compositions that there are no high-quality recordings of yet. Uh, but thanks to the funding we got for the Viking project, we have much better sound equipment now. So we're doing new recordings of all of that, which we hope to finish up by the summer. We hoped to finish it last summer, but then our apartment burned down. Oh, so damn. That <laughs> some time, but. That'll put a crimp in your production cycle, yeah. Yeah, that was, that was bad. Uh, so, But that new CD project is underway, and I'm also working on finishing up a blog series on Exurbe about the history of skepticism. Mm. Uh, which has been a lot of fun to work on. And, and timely, uh, in my academic actually. work, I'm working on a couple of book chapters, one of them about geeky uh, activities of Latin grammar uh, lovers in the late 1400s and trying to uh, get at what grammar they were most excited by and, and see how similar it is to what grammar our present-day Latin nerds are most excited by. Uh, <laughs> And then another chapter on um, the history of Epicurean uh, atomist physics theories uh, wow. and the uh, recovery of uh, atomist physics after the Renaissance. That or after the Middle Ages. Science fiction, atomist theories, music, anything else? Uh, those are the big things. That's the big things, okay. <laughs> what about uh, conventions? What, what's your convention schedule looking like? I'll definitely be at Boss Cone this spring. I'm excited for that because that's the weekend that Seven Surrenders comes out. So we're going to have a bit of a celebration at Pandemonium Books in Boston. Sweet. Um, 
and then I'm going to actually I get to miss Anime Boston for the first time in 13 years. Oh my I've god! Been Anime Boston, but unfortunately, the Renaissance Society of America conference, the largest academic conference in my field, is happening in my home city of Chicago that weekend. Oh, so I'm conflict. hosting a big museum tour and a bunch of other uh, projects. So I'm, I, that means I'm having to support Anime Boston only from a distance. Okay, Uh, but I will definitely be at the Helsinki World Con, and I don't yet know about the rest of my summer convention plans. Excellent. I hope to go to Reader Con, but I'm not sure yet. Gen Con? I don't know. Fiftieth anniversary, major notary. Yeah, it depends on whether or not I'm showing Latin students around Florence at that point. <laughs> See, and and this is this is this is Ada World problems right here. You know, <laughs> go to a convention, show grad students Florence. What's it going to be? It's a hard choice. I want to do both and take turns. <laughs> well, I will make sure all of that gets into the liner notes, Ada, so that everybody can can make with the clicky click and follow you and, and see all the awesomeness you're making. Melanie, I know you've got some stuff out in the world or coming up in the world as well. What's what's coming up on your calendar? The biggest thing right now is um, the anthology that I'm co-editing um, called Hath No Fury. Yes. Um, yeah, and that's that's featuring authors like Seanan McGuire, Dana Cameron, William Dietz, um, Bradley Bullier, and lots and lots of other really awesome people. Um, um, we have stories from them. We have essays from people like Robin Hobb. We have an introduction from Margaret Weiss. You know, lots of really cool people involved in that project. So that's got me excited. Yeah. Um, and I'm currently going through 300 stories in the slush pile to um, pick two, one or two of the best ones out for that. <laughs> You're a slush wrangler too. Oh my God. <laughs> But I have my own book that I'm working on, and um, I'm trying to blog more regularly over at the Once in Future podcast, and of course, wrangle the monkeys over at Ragnarok Publications. So yeah, I have a pretty full plate. You do have a full plate. <laughs> what, what what's your convention schedule looking like? Um, well, I have Boscone in February, um, and Gen Con in the summer, and that's pretty much it. I have a couple of um, workshops that I'm teaching otherwise, but conventions i'm looking at a light year in 2017 Hmm, okay yeah really all right friends figure out where melanie is because you want to connect with her she's she's a person to know uh (laughs) and you can't miss her when you're walking down the halls but both times these last two gen cons we've randomly run into each other uh uh, and we (laughs) say melanie dave hey (laughs) it's it's like it's like the universe just conspires to bring us together it's awesome it's It's pretty odd when considering that there's like 60,000 other people there. I know, right? <laughs> See, that's why I say the universe is conspiring on our behalf. That's just how it is. Very cool. Well, Melanie, Ada, I will definitely get all of that into the liner notes. Let folks know what's coming up for you uh, and where to find you and all of that good clicky-clickness. Right now, here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to pause for, for uh, a brief bit of time, give give, give a, a podcast or a Kickstarter or another ebook some podcast airtime uh, and promote them. And then when we come back, Ada, Melanie, I would love to brainstorm a story with you. What do you say? I'm game. Yes, we're down. We have an accord. Friends, don't you go anywhere. We'll be right back. 
Once upon a time, there lived a witch named Alba. I'm afraid chiropractic isn't covered for centaurs. Who had an apprentice called Magnus. Your neighborhood is full of smug, smart-ass woodland creatures, and they all hate me. And a fairy assistant named Holly. A team that cares! A team that heals! Together! And together, they tended to the king. I will not live with snakes on my head. The queen. Oh. How dare you address me like that? And all the people of the little kingdom of Farloria. I want a test for fatsoplasia. Alba, I think I have the plague! The plague, you say? Alba Salix, Royal Physician. A fairy tale comedy for the ear from Forgery League. Visit forgeryleague.com. Just fill out this patient information form and Alba will see you in a minute. Welcome back, dear friends, and now we get down to the business at hand. The reason why we're here, certainly, and the reason why you tuned in. The story brainstorm. And that does not happen without a bold and courageous, a creative and courageous guest writer striding boldly to the uncomfortable writer's chair here at the round table. I'm sorry, we keep trying to put padding on it, and the universe just says, no, it's it, there's no padding on the writer's chair. You're just going to have to sit on that hard wood. Uh, and friends, our guest writer for this episode uh, was raised by two parents, three older brothers, and Gandalf the Grey. Uh, he started writing novels when he was 14, and he has yet to stop. Along the way, he has acquired a degree in English literature, traveled to India, Australia, and Malaysia, and built scale models of monsters from his dreams. <laughs> his literary achievements to date include Hunter and Seed, an ontological urban fantasy, the Ten Liars series, and Rem's Dream, a YA action adventure for which, dear friends, he was knighted by us here at the RTP. Yes, we're in the presence of knighthooddom. It's not royalty, it's knight knightliness. I'm going to come up with a better adjective the next time we have another night on. But friends, he also hosts the podcast of Mooks and Monsters, an exploration into the running of role-playing games. Dear friends, please welcome to the writer's chair here at the round table once again, Timothy Niederreiter. Tim, it's been far too long since you were on, but dude, you know, first of all, congratulations on getting Rem's dream writ and out in the world. Uh, uh, and then... <laughs> Uh, uh, much, much gratitude and appreciation for having the, the courage to come back and do it again, man. Thank you so much. Oh, it's no problem, Dave. You know, I'm a glutton for punishment, and I love your podcast. <laughs> and it all comes together. Ah, Tim, dude, I'm pumped. Let's get into this, man. I don't want to mince any words. Let's just get right into it. You, above all other people, know how this works. We give you five to eight minutes. You give us the title, the genre, the format, the intended audience. You give us the tagline. Introduce us to the themes and the world where the story takes place. Uh, uh, tell us about the characters, and then give us the tent poles of the story, and that's all we need. We'll be off to the brainstorming races. I'm going to shut up now, sir. The mic is all yours. So the working title for this story is The Corporeal Path. The genre is fantasy. And the format I'm seeing is a series of novels. The audience I see for this book is adult readers. And the logline is a court advisor who put a king on the throne must learn to negotiate with godlike monsters to save her world from their war. The theme of the story is, honestly, I have no idea as to the theme at this point. <laughs> so I work that out later, usually. And perhaps you can help me with it. The world is a secondary world with ancient beings similar to Lovecraft's old ones, though they, these have slightly more understandable goals. 
Only two of these beings travel the cosmos, and they are the more and they're on their way to the protagonist's world. The planet central to this story accreted around the body of the great old one who gave birth to all the others. And the kingdom the main character controls from the shadows is at a place where, mon- where monstrous bones emerge from the ground. Nobility in this world have the blood of the deceased old one flowing in their veins and can control others in their hierarchy. The characters. So the protagonist is named Avrain. She's a skilled political manipulator and a chemist, self-assured and dangerously intelligent. She lacks noble blood, and her greatest fear is being powerless. Her goal is to remain behind the scenes while she works so the king she recently put on the throne can stabilize the kingdom. She starts out confident in her power and ends the book with a more realistic assessment of what control she has over the world. The main antagonist to Avrain's power is not the villain of the story, so to speak. Instead, this is the king, Odem I, the ruler she put on the throne. He sees Avrain as his trump card and he plays her and her team more and more publicly as the story progresses. Her power over him disrupts the hierarchy of the nobles' blood and is a potential embarrassment for both of them. He starts out as a ruler on an uneasy throne and ends with his power consolidated, but having gained the knowledge that even being a king is an ephemeral position. The villain of book one is named Tia. She is a rival noblewoman who wanted to be queen, but lost the new dynasty to Odem. Her machinations are the problem at the start of the story as she tries to unseat the king and ruin Avrain's team. By the end of the story, she has made a deal with one of the monstrous gods and will flee the kingdom to serve him further. The two monstrous gods are important characters. Vin and Mig are looking for the remains of their mother. Both want to find a final clutch of eggs left waiting to hatch. Both are terribly destructive forces. And Vin's ambassadors arrive first, Meg allies with Tia. Finally, there is Narevev, one of the old ones yet to be born, but able to project her spirit to Avrain. She has been Avrain's secret friend since childhood. Avrain also has a team of specialists and agents that work with her, but these are not super well fleshed out at this point. So, as to the story. The story starts with Avrain and her team checking the chambers in the palace for traps and trouble as they have just taken over from Tia's forces, following the new king being declared. Alone for a moment, she's approached by a mysterious creature, which its appearance is masked at first. He reveals himself to be both an alien creature and a servant of Vin, who is coming to the city soon. Avrain shows the ambassador to the king, and the king declares this envoy to be a guest and will greet this approaching alien king. Avrain is given the role of investigating this new power in the land. She and her team look into lore, cults, and eventually go to meet with the the scouts of Vin's forces as the old old one moves across the land. Act 1 culminates in the arrival of Vin in the city, along with the entourage of bizarre beings. The king, the kings throw a ball for the aliens. Vin appears as at the height of the festivities. He appears as a well-spoken, nearly human-looking creature, and takes an interest in Evrain because he thinks she knows where the eggs are. He thinks this because he can sense Narevev's presence. Then, Evrain is pulled away from the party by news that the, another delegation has arrived from a different ancient king, Mig. So, Act 2 sees Evrain meet with Mig's delegation. There are more obviously monstrous than, even than Vin's people, and, they, and include a, lot of, a, pred, a kind of predatory monster that feeds on ancient blood as foot soldiers. The king asks Evrain to set up meeting between the alien delegations amidst continued attempts by Tia to subvert the current ruler. Mig arrives and is first greeted by Tia because of the distractions her schemes cause. By the time Evrain meets with Mig, 
the would-be queen and godlike monster are fast allies. So the big middle of the story is when Mig and Vin meet with each other, with Avrain acting as mediator. Their massive powers become obvious, and the two of them would come to blows if Avrain did not do some quick thinking to separate them. Avrain and the kings, and the king decide to do which of the two monsters they will ally with, for though these beings are brothers, they will never have peace. At the end of, of the act, Avrain and her team discover what the two elder beings are after, the final clutch of their mother's offspring. Act three begins with the tension between Meg and Vin's delegation building, and the king decides that the two gods need to leave the city. He tasks Avrain with finding a, a way to make the, them depart. Eventually, she will find her way into the catacombs beneath the city, braving alien servants of both gods to find the clutch, and then... I'm not quite sure how to end it. I do know I want Narva's true nature to be revealed to Avrain in the process, however. And I assume she will succeed. Uh, what I want... So what I want to get out of this workshop is help with the machinations of the great old ones and how to complicate things effectively with mortal foes and allies and also how to make the schemes a central part of the story because I'm used to writing a lot of action. Okay. Machiavellian schemes. I, I think we've got that covered. Uh, I think we got that covered in spades. Um, and, and I'm sure there's other things that, uh, that our, our esteemed panel uh, and myself will be diving into. So well done, sir. Excellent, excellent pitch. Uh, uh, but before we dive into this, uh, uh, we need to cover our ass. Uh, we, need, we need to roll out the patented roundtable podcast disclaimer. Melanie, would you be so kind, madam? Certainly. Oh, thank you. Um, Tim, you're about to experience a veritable deluge of ideas, insights, and inspirations. It's important that you realize that everything said from this point forward by myself, Dave, or Ada might be complete bullshit. <laughs> Always remember that this is your story and you get to decide what to use and what to trash, okay? Sure. <laughs> sure. Yeah, no problem. Sure. Bring he's, it on. He's, he's been here before. He's all cocky and arrogant now. It's awesome. <laughs> Very good. All right. Well, let's dive into this then. With our with our asses covered, uh, we can brainstorm. And we always start with a quick once around the table uh, uh, to give first impressions and ask some questions of clarification. We always start with our guest hosts. So, Ada Palmer, please start us off. What were your first impressions of, of Tim's story idea? And do you have any questions of clarification? Um, my first impression was that he left out everything important that I wanted to know. Um, so <laughs> yes. I have a number of questions, and you'll see immediately that the questions are aiming at things that are not plot. Those who listened to the first half of this podcast uh, know that I think that plot is only a very small component of things. And the, the, the warning sign of you weren't sure what the themes of the book are is also sort of what I'm driving at. So my biggest question reading over this plot summary is, what does Tia think happens to you when you die? Does she believe that there is a mortal soul? If so, where does she think it goes? I have the same question for other people and for the society in general, whether it has a religion. Because you've told me there are gods in this universe, but you haven't told me, do these people know there are gods in this universe? Mm. Do they worship them? Do they worship different gods? Do they worship gods that are not those gods and they're totally wrong about the gods? Do they <laughs> worship one of these gods but not the other? Do they have multiple factions, some of whom worship one of these gods, another whom, of whom doesn't worship these gods? Okay. Uh, I don't know anything about what this culture, how shocked this culture is going to be by what's happened. Is this a culture that knows everything you've told us about that there's a 
dead god inside this world, that it's the primary god, uh, that there are other gods around, that there are only two of them that move around. I don't know what's going to be shocking, because in many ways the themes of this, and also the conclusion of this, are where you want to zoom out and ask what's going to happen to the whole society as a result of this. Is this a society that has just had gods show up and discovered that these gods exist and it didn't know that? Or have they showed up and had people discover that they are totally different from what they thought they were like? <laughs> so, or yeah, have they shown up and one of them is what they thought they were like and the other one is totally different from what they <laughs> thought they were like? Because <laughs> that's where you get your bigger themes about why this matters to the whole society. And at the end, when these two gods are going to get toward those clusters of eggs and possibly have control, therefore, over what's going to create a bunch of new gods, Gods, the actions of your humans, if these people are humans, toward that and the way that's going to affect everyone at the end has a huge amount to do with what these gods' roles is in the larger society, which you didn't talk about at all. Do you, do you have any... Do, I, do actually, I do actually have the assumptions I was making there. I just didn't say them. Yeah, because you've only um, got eight minutes. I got it. So, so yeah. very, very quickly, can you fill in some of those gaps, Tim? Yeah. I, I this, The basic idea is that Informed by love crafting tone, humans do not understand these two beings that have arrived. They don't. They they wouldn't even see them as gods necessarily. I just use those terms because that's kind of how they're referred to in the the Lovecraft mythos. But anyway, uh, I think they would see. They probably have a. They must have a religion. See, I'm, I'm going to be very. Because you also use the word alien not, at some point. Yeah, they're 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 more like aliens. That are well, do the, no. Does this world have a concept of aliens? Right, because the the concept of an alien in Amer in in Earth culture, dates to about, what, 1750? Hmm. Okay. okay, fair enough. Yeah, I, I'd say they probably do not have that idea. They're just weird, and they right. do not look like anything they've seen before. So is there a religion in this world, Tim? There, is there, there is. There, I'm a, I would say there definitely are religions, and the one tied to the the blood of the, 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 the noble hierarchy is the important one. Okay. So these gods, and if and once you figure out, once they figure out that the gods have the same blood as the nobles, they could well see them as gods because God they're not powerful. Clarify a thing for me. When you say the nobles can control people with the blood, this is like magically? Yes, yes. That's okay. the only magic. So if you're saying they they're plural religions and the important one is the one tied to that, why would any other religion continue to exist in a world where one of the religions has magical power to control everyone and all the other religions are powerless bunk? Why would they well, even exist? Because the other religions aren't necessarily powerless. This is okay, the only so one I've explored. What what are what are the power? I mean, that, not that's sure. Where you're or perhaps get the the, themes, or, right? Actually, I could see one reason why the because the noble religion is, is basically the nobility religion kind of thing is ah. that you don't you aren't a per, you know it's not a very attractive religion if you're not a noble. Mm -hmm. So okay. I could see why people wouldn't want to view that as a wouldn't take that as their religion. Well, so even if they don't have power, they may not see it as true. And to, to clarify, to clarify in the context of of the story pitch, Tim Tim hasn't done exhaustive world building on on this world, right. so raising those questions is is yes, incredibly valid uh, uh, and very appropriate. But th there's a good chance that that we might need to fill in some of those blanks ourselves. Yeah. So indeed, indeed, okay. I can't, I can't, uh, <laughs> I could not tell you all of it. Okay. Right. Okay. What other other one or two of those other questions that were were rattling around there, Ada, that you have? Well, I'm thinking right now about the idea of there being other religions that are popular because they appeal more to people who don't have noble blood and are yeah. not interested in the religion that centers around 
power falling all in the hands of one person. Which would and bring interesting an interesting cultural too, structure, cultural right. friction there as well, yeah. Well, and it's interesting because then I'm thinking about two interesting real-world Earth examples of exactly that and exactly the opposite of that, both of which happened. Okay. Uh, because you have on the one hand... Okay, so Calvinism, hardcore good old 16th century Calvinism, very different from the way it's practiced today. <laughs> Calvinism of that period tells you, you're a filthy, horrible, unworthy, sin-ridden, monstrous spider that a distant and judgmental God is hanging over, holding over a fire, and you deserve to be thrown into that fire. And only a very few elect of which you almost certainly aren't a member are going to be arbitrarily saved, even though they don't deserve it. And all of the world really deserves to go down in flames, and most of it will. What a charming this notion. This religion <laughs> is incredibly popular. Mm. And tens of thousands of people not only convert, but in fact fight to the death and die for this. Even though the net message is, you are scum, you will burn, and a very tiny elite will not. But it was immensely popular because it hit the right historical vein of, of appealing to people. And specifically in the case of Calvinism of the 16th century, I think what it was is that the world they lived in was so horrible, so plague-ridden, so death-ridden, so full of constant warfare and destruction, that a metaphysics which told them, yes, that's intentional, there's a God who planned that, it's because everyone deserves it, made it feel like there was justice to it. That people felt more satisfied believing that everyone who they saw suffering deserved to suffer than having it be arbitrary. So Calvinism was successful despite being incredibly, if you think about it from the outside, unappealing. Because it hit the, the world in a moment of things being really bad so that everybody really wanted to have a religion that would explain to them why everyone deserves suffering. If you then zoom in instead to turn of the first century Rome and, and the Roman Empire, and when Christianity shows up, Christianity becomes incredibly popular among the disenfranchised slave populations. It's the first population in which it becomes hugely, hugely popular, uh, partly because it's a really, at that point, sort of positive, gentle, let's all be friends to each other, let's create a better and more co-equal and sharing life experience, which was exactly what that population wanted in that moment. So those two examples show you how both the idea of there being a secondary religion, which is because people wanted something that wasn't no focused on the nobles, could be very, very plausible and, and function much like Christianity did in its nascent days. Or it could be just the opposite. Everyone could really like this religion that says only the nobles are right in exactly the same way that in the horror that was 16th century Europe, everyone really loved Calvinism, which made them all feel as if they were suffering constantly for a reason instead of no reason. So that leads me to want to know how socioeconomically and politically uh, ravaged is this world? Yeah, a new king has just come to power. Did he just come to power through a small coup? Did he just come to power after two centuries of civil war, which wiped out 90% of the population? Did we just come out of the England's glorious revolution where no one dies? Or did we just come out of the War of the Roses where everyone dies? <laughs> which that gives you an 
extremely different society, which will therefore have different reactions to giant scary monsters showing up out of nowhere. Because I feel like if a giant scary monster out of Lovecraft had showed up in front of John Calvin, he would have been so happy. What do you okay. say, Tim? What what what? Uh, how how was uh, the king 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 Odom's ascent to the throne? I imagine there only been a few battles, and he probably actually was in one of them. So th- th- there was there was there was these other nobles, and then the hierarchy is established, and therefore a new king takes over. I, I imagine the old king wasn't assassinated or anything. The old dynasty just kind of died out. Like they could, they just didn't have any heirs. Okay. So, so they there was a struggle, but it wasn't terribly bloody. And and you know to address it is issue of of you know why do people accept that these weird freaking Vin and Mig dudes showing up? Why why are why are they accepting that this is these are people worthy of negotiation and not instant? Oh my God, kill them now, kill them now. Yeah, I think I, I'm open to suggestions, but I think it's along the lines of they don't realize how dangerous they really are. So they don't like I, like in the in the pitch, Vin appears to be human, almost so when, human, almost human. But it, like, it, so he's he's not like a giant or anything. At least he doesn't appear to be. Well, does this society have legends of other humanoid races? Do they have legends of fairies and dwarves and elves? I mean, do they have a they vocabulary do, do. of what this yeah. can be? So they do have they think some of them. Bad? They have they have the one the one species that I mentioned with Meg's troops are uh, are basically a classic boogeyman kind of creature. Okay. So they uh, think it's that. Yeah. Okay. So they, 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 but those are, those arrive in the second wave. So they don't realize Vin's people are that. So that's, or, so they, they, they have so a more favorable, pa- and, favorable opinion of Vin's people. I want to zoom out and ask you what you mean by a classic boogeyman creature. Cause I have, you know, books in the other room, which will tell you the long documentary. History oh, I didn't mean, of- I meant like in this society, it's their boogeyman. In this case, they're, they're with the nobles boogeyman because they feed on noble blood. And so they need to they need to feed on noble blood to become adults. They're alpha predators, basically. Basically, but they only need to do it once, and then they grow into an adult. They're these monstrous creatures that can grow additional limbs from their backs. And everyone it, knows that they're not real, but people fear them. Well, they know they're real in in this setting. They're they're one of the thing, things that That's lives not on like the a planet. boogeyman. The point of the boogeyman I is suppose, that it's I not. They, yeah, maybe people don't think they're real then. Okay, <laughs> I mean, we can I, we can put a pin in that. You know, we can put a pin in that, and and because as we explore and look at how this whole thing all shakes together, uh, uh, there, there there could be instances where if they don't believe it, it's more dramatically interesting and tells a better story than if they do, or vice versa. Well, so, for example, you could have this be a society that never in its entire cultural history has it ever imagined the existence of a non-human thinking thing. Of a non-human sentient life form, like you know, human culture, we had all of these legends of elves and and Jotuns and all different sorts of things. So when we started imagining aliens, we very easily had this mental structure of oh, they're like these other non-human things that we have imagined in hmm. our past. Okay. And most of the time, when we make another world, whether it's a second world fantasy or a science fiction world, we we have our aliens or our whatever race it is either have really other races or at least the idea of other races but what if you had one that this society has actually never thought before of the idea that there could ever be a thinking speaking moving thing that wasn't human Hmm. because then you're going to have a completely different level of culture shock when that happens for the first time i also like that idea because then that's why they would assume well you can talk to me 
you must be a human. That's why they wouldn't jump to the conclusion that you're a monster right off the bat. Necessarily. Right. You're yeah, not a there could be this exotic sort of enamorment of it. Yeah. Because then, then you're, you're writing a first contact story in which first contact is exponentially more surprising than it would be for us. I mean, we're here all primed and ready for first contact. We really know what to expect, but if they've never imagined this, not even if in their religion, I love you would that be idea. able to yeah. Yeah, have a completely unique challenge to this society that I don't think anyone has explored yeah. ever. That's yeah. awesome. Because then, I mean, you could think about it in the way that that way the, their first thought wouldn't be, oh, we have to kill it. It could be that the you know they're surprised and these other beings would take advantage of their surprise and start manipulating them and you know getting what they want from these people sure. instead of you know the other people trying to attack them or, or whatever. And you could have, That's you know, based yeah. on, based on their cultural background or their religious background, some people being very trusting and full of wonder at this and others yeah. being the exact opposite, which again creates that wonderful friction within the culture that will be yeah. where the real story is. I like yeah, that. that, that I, I like that as well. And it also makes it seem, I think that that supports more the let's have a party for the creatures that are showing up. Which is kind of what happens mm-hmm. in the outline, anyway. So and and so the nobles then, with their particular unique religious and and cosmological orientation, are going to assume good things, uh, whereas the other people that are disenfranchised and don't like the nobles for good reason are going to go, oh, I don't think so. That's bad. I like that. <laughs> I like that. Melanie, what about you? What are, what are, what are your first impressions of of Tim's pitch, and what what questions do you have? Okay. Well, I think this is where the um, brainstorming gets fun because, um, well, where Ada is really good at the world building and she sees the big picture as far as the setting and and religion and things like that goes, um, I was looking at it more from the perspective of character and with character having like goal motivation, conflict, things like that. So I'm looking at the main character Avrain and I'm seeing that so she has no noble blood but she's in a position where she's putting a king on the throne and I think that that gave me pause in the log line because where we have a court advisor who put a king on the throne what makes that a motivating protagonist somebody who who puts someone else in power so it immediately brought to my mind so where is her power um, why yeah. is she doing this? How did she have the um, power to do that? Exactly. And, and, and what are her personal stakes in this? Um, you know, why not claim some power for herself? Um, what does she really care about? What's important for her? You know, because so clearly, you know, being king isn't or queen isn't important to her um, or not directly. You know, she's helping someone else. So, um, and I know that you only had eight minutes to pitch your story, so I'm sure that there's like a lot of this behind the scenes. But, um, you know, I really wanted to know what was most important to your character, um, what, like more on a personal level than the external plot level. Do you got anything um, for us on that, Tim? Yeah. You know, I, I, not not so much on the personal level, actually. I'm, again, this story is fairly young in my mind. Mm-hmm. So I haven't, and I'm also really bad at character. I should have mentioned that in the, what I want help with what I would say that she, she kind of did want to be King, but because she doesn't have the noble blood, no one's going to recognize her as the King. Only the nobles can become King or Queen. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I could so see then uh, that would you know, be an, an, a barrier for her. And, and, uh, 
I'm, no, I'm not going to interject. Sorry. Carry on, Melanie. What other <laughs> questions did you well, have? <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe we are of a like mind. Yes. Um, I found it really interesting when you said, um, when you were answering Ada's questions about the, um, the nobility versus the non-nobility, um, the fact that she's not a noble, um, I thought that that could bring in some interesting motivations and stuff like that yeah. into um, into the story because you have this this person who clearly her family is not they aren't nobles they don't have the same lifestyle or the same even you suggested the same religion or something like that as the nobility but then she comes out of that and is working for the nobles. Um, so I think maybe she had, you know, this, this is an opportunity for her to have some conflict on a personal level as far as she has her family and then she has her job and, you know, those things could directly conflict with each other. You know, maybe she's hearing some warnings about these beings from her family and yet the nobility are like, yeah, these people are awesome. Um, you know, things like that. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so I think that from that you could draw from that um and find some reasons for the readers to really empathize with her um to figure out why they should care about her what does she have to lose that readers can really identify with i like that a lot I like Melanie, that, yeah. because because basically you put a rain as the, the 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 mouthpiece and the the manifestation of the struggles of the culture itself by putting her squarely between the nobles and the disenfranchised people by giving her feet in both worlds she's torn and and the the stakes then become that much higher i like that a lot very cool any other any other thoughts or questions before we roll on? I have a question related to that. Yeah, sure. Go ahead, Ada. What percentage of the population of this world is nobility? I mean, are we talking about 17th century France, which was 40% nobility, 60% non-nobility? Are we talking about feudal Japan, where there are six people literally descended from the moon god and everyone else <laughs> is not? What portion of this society is nobility? Because you get a very different map if this is a struggle between two large classes, one of whom is slightly majority versus a very small class. You know, I imagine it being somewhere in between the, you know, not somewhere in between the, the, the probably 10 and 1% of the population is noble. Mm -hmm. But it could be more because the lower nobles can't command the higher nobles. You need to be up to top to tippity top on nobility, or you couldn't become the the ruler, for example, because the more powerful it's like if the more powerful wizard rules effectively. Is this a how much you've interbred with other nobles, so you have X amount of the blood in you based power, or is this birth chance? I think it's more chance because mm -hmm. they all, because they're all their blood derives from not so so. I imagine the nobles actually have a large have large families, perhaps if if that's the case. <laughs> Well, right, be because if you have it, roll the dice based, more often. If you, yeah, because if you have it be based on how much blood there is, then you, what you have is very complicated intermarriages where the most pure blood families are trying to constantly marry only each other to try to concentrate the blood in a few people, and then you have a sort of diffusion where you have high nobility, middle nobility, depending on how high bred you are, or the contrary, you have the Marvel universe random mutant powers one where you turn <laughs> to a teenager and find out how good your mutant powers are uh, uh, where every yeah. family would want to have lots of children to see whether they have a really strong one you can have either of those sort of 
systems or a different one going well, on. And that's one of the interesting things I think about this, Ada, you bring up an interesting point is that, you know, there's this struggle with the nobles of, well, if we, if we have a bunch of children, we're stronger in the larger power structure because there's more people with the power. But that also creates more competition for the power that's there to be had. I mean, you can also, it could also be a society that already, much like many Earth societies, had plans for what happens to the other children, right? Yeah. Medieval society, the eldest son inherits, the second son goes into the church, the third son goes becomes your economic interface with the next city over. There, there are plans for that. So there could be a, you know, an entire second separate set of society which is devoted to i don't know music based necromancy that's perfect the second child of every noble family goes and does that unless for some reason the second child is the one with the strongest powers in which case you reverse it but then it's greatly embarrassing to the other (laughs) (laughs) and 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 drama ensues plus plus (laughs) that also now that creates the the foundation of that religion that the nobles belong to i mean having the second son go into the religion means Means that the priesthood, of uh, you know, the predominant ruling priesthood order is fed by the noble line, and the magic that it wields uh, uh, has a similar flavor or or, or uh, agenda, as it were. I love that. That's what, great. What happens if you have a bone marrow transfusion from a noble? <laughs> I didn't. I didn't consider that because the technology is a little lower than that. I think, but. I'd imagine you could gain the magic that way. So you could mix blood mm. if 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 I if I you know cut my hand and you cut your hand and you're noble and we shake <laughs> no, hands. No, but, no, uh, the but bone, bone, isn't the bone marrow transfusion is where you you start producing yeah, different blood. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But what if somebody tried? What if somebody tried to do bone marrow transfusion and it totally had no effect and didn't work because they oh, can't okay. do this successfully at this tech level? But people found out about it. Yeah. And there was a huge cultural backlash against that person and that whole family and that whole village for trying to do something so sacrilegious. Trying as... to become noble. Yeah. Right. Mm. I like that. That's yeah. a cool idea. Yeah. yeah. What if of... that happened to our protagonist's village or family? Ooh. So, uh, well, what that if leads her into a parents question. Tr- yeah. What if her parents tried this or even tried yeah. this with her and it totally mm. didn't work, but oh, they were destroyed for it? That's amazing. I love that idea. That's awesome. Plus, it also in imply it gives a justification for why Avrain has the voice of uh, Nerevev. Exactly. Exactly. That's what I was going mm, to say too. Yeah. 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 Because now, now yeah. she's brushed up against this other power, this other force. And see, what I was going to say was that you know, right now we only have Avrain having the voice and, and the influence of Nerevev in there. What if there are others? What yeah. if oh, the, sure the, the counter-religion for the mm-hmm. disenfranchised is uh-huh. informed by Nerevev? Yes. And or, so that, or other yeah. siblings. Or other eggs other out of the clutch. Eggs. Yeah. Yeah. Other, yeah. Other unhatched eggs out of the clutch. Because one question I was going to ask was, what is preventing the non-nobles from revolting against the nobles? Like, what... You know, because you have a small subset that has power and you have a large subset that doesn't have power, what... Where does, I mean, I know that the nobles have the power of, of, you know, this religion thing and they have the blood of the old ones and whatnot, but why can't the non-nobles revolt? Like, what's the balance of power? 
Well, because the nobles have the ability to mind control multiple people at once. Okay. Two or three at the lower levels, probably. Well, hey, we, we, so, we could expand that as well by having them yeah. place themselves in the in the food and protection area. Go, yeah. That was the other question yeah. I had was, are there enemies of this kingdom? Other, uh, yes, can- yes, there are. I've lost my notes on them, though. <laughs> okay, but but there's there's the other you know hoarding ravening hordes at the gates that that we need to protect ourselves against. And if the nobles are in charge of the military, then yeah. then they've got control. Yeah, yeah that makes well, sense. I wanted to know what the staple agricultural crop is. <sighs> I don't know because <laughs> that dictates what portion of your population has to live in rural environments during agriculture. Good point, good point. Because if they're growing rice, which can be grown, huge quantities of rice can be grown in a very small space, then you can have most even of your poor population be near major cities. But if they're growing something that's like corn or yucca, which takes an enormous amount of space, then you have to have a vast rural population, which is very, very far from cities, making your noble population be much more geographically segregated from your non-noble mm-hmm. population, which can have a huge effect on the practicality of rebellion. Rebellion is a lot easier when your poor classes are all right about the city than when they're yeah. very far away and spread out quick sidebar ada have you ever like codified your world building uh, uh paradigm and the questions that you ask because i would have never thought to ask that question and that's that's inspired <laughs> that's a damn good question uh, no it's just just something you know when she asked why aren't they rebelling i was thinking i wonder if it's because they can't get there yeah Sometimes, yeah, historically speaking, that's the answer. So, Ada, in all of your spare time, you could write a book about world building. <laughs> or at least a blog post. There you go. There you go. All right. I, I Actually, I have a couple of questions I want to, I want to drop in here. Um, uh, so, so, Tim, the, the nobles have the power to uh, uh, control people's minds, uh, two or three people at a time. Yes? Yes. Is that their only power? Uh, so far, that's all I'm working with. Okay. Is there any price? Is there any consequence for exerting that power? Or I have figured one out. I know there needs to be one. I've just not thought too much about the magic system. Okay. All right. I, I have thoughts about that. Um, you said that uh, uh, King Odom uh, rep- uh, concerns the power that Evrain has over him. What is that power? He's... It's because... I think it's because she's smarter than he is. I imagine him being a fairly young king, and then she's well-educated. That's something that didn't come off in the pitch. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming she must be well-educated because she's got this knowledge of, you know, the limited sciences they have as well as the political machinations. Okay. So she is, is like his strategist. So who maybe buy, who, who helps him, who helped him defeat these other challengers. Maybe a brain, uh, uh, didn't just do this, but this is her plan. Uh, uh, she, she is a powerless non-blood uh, uh, out in a world where if you've got the blood, you win. Um, mm-hmm. The only way to seize power and to gain uh, uh, ability, the ability to mitigate the circumstances for the people that are non-bloods is to put a king in power and have him in her debt. So her, you know, she didn't do this just because she could. This is her plan. Mm-hmm. I yeah. And she's been working on this for, for since she was like, 16 years old and started to understand the nature of the world she has been maneuvering to put herself in a position where she could and, and she probably brought about the downfall of the other one or at least was so connected that she understood the the forces at work and could you know manipulate them in a way that would put Odin on the throne and make him in her debt so that she can actually start leveraging some power in a world where she's powerless 
Yeah, and so that brings up, um, again, about character. You can figure out what happened in her past that made her want to do this. You know, was there some kind of tragedy in her past? Was, um, you know, was her family especially downtrodden? Um, well, and, and you know, Ada actually brought that up already. If, if they tried yeah. to bone... Well, can, yeah, can, yeah. I, yeah, can yeah. I propose a completely contradictory in every possible way? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Bring it. Go ahead. So let's imagine that she, that there was this uh, forbidden experiment to try to transplant, to try to transplant bone marrow. That that didn't work. But uh, it happened. She was either the child of the people who tried to do this. I mean, they have to be very well educated, so it's very possible that their daughter is also very well educated. Or perhaps she was just from the same village. But when the nobles found out, they decided the correct thing to do was to wipe out everybody in that village. Yeah. And let's imagine that she, as being someone who was close to the people who tried to do it, but clearly wasn't involved, was imprisoned for a while because they wanted to interrogate her and learn about the thing. So she's imprisoned being interrogated. And she's really smart. And she knows that she's already been sentenced to death. And she really wants to live. So she spends her time in prison. She gets a hold of some paper and she writes up a strategy manual for how to make yourself king. <laughs> Uh, as her one pitch and then she smuggles this to the noble who's in charge of her interrogation who is this young potential claimant to the throne and everyone knows that the current monarch has no heirs who then reads it and thinks wow this person is a genius who could get me on the throne Mm. I will instead of killing her I will conceal her identity make her my advisor and she will become king Uh, she will make me king so then she becomes the secret you know right-hand advisor of this person really because it was a desperation tactic it was the only way she could live mm-hmm. but when he takes her as his primary advisor suddenly she has hope suddenly she's like wow i'm gonna actually make this person king and then i'm gonna be able to advise him and he'll listen to me and we'll be able to make this a better world where entire cities aren't wiped out in punishment <laughs> for somebody doing a science experiment this will be wonderful and she starts to develop hope And she gets him on the throne, and as soon as he's on the throne, he doesn't need her anymore, and he's not listening to her anymore. He tries to kill her. She's giving him advice, and he's starting to ignore it, and... No, he tries to kill her. Wouldn't that be the first... I mean, she's a dark secret. He may may or may not need to bother to kill her. I mean, he's king now. No one's going to hurt him. So he could try to kill her, or he could just ignore her. And then she has the agony of standing next to his throne every day. You know, wearing the livery of his, you know, immediate advisor and having him listen to idiots and do what they do instead or do what they say instead. Meanwhile, she has she also has the voice of the unborn, you know, creature whispering in her brain as well, uh, offering alternatives and possible other ways to to circumvent her circumstances. And that could turn into an amazing twist for the reader because the reader will assume that that voice is in her head because she was involved in the transplant experiment, that somehow Uh, she thinks it didn't work, but it really did. And then you can have the amazing reveal of having it say, nope, it didn't. That experiment did nothing. (laughs) She has the voice of this person in her head because she's just so brilliant that her mind is the mind into which this God chose to reach. Yes. That would be so shocking. To get most of the way through your story and discover that your protagonist's secret magic backstory isn't there. Especially... Okay, I I have a a totally off-the-wall, completely (laughs) weird, crazy idea. Bring it. So, what what if um, the non-nobles are so used to being crapped upon and 
so used to believing that they are nothing and that they can't be smart, that they can't be, you know, well-trained or have any position of power, that Avrain thinks that her own intelligence is the voice of Narevev, who is, um, you know, giving her all these ideas and, and making her have all these thoughts and everything else, but she can't have them on her own because she's not a noble. So she needs mm. to attribute them to some other being or wow. something like that. I mean, that would change a whole lot. That, that's a great idea. And actually, because it actually echoes the original reason I thought of the, the voice in her head, who she's not really sure is real for most of the story. That's one of the reasons the things I imagined was she was not going to know that this creature was really a lot, a creature. Like it can only talk to her. It, it's, you know, cause it's an, an egg somewhere, mm-hmm. yep. but, and no one else would believe it was real until maybe the end of the story. And then you realize that's what it was all along. Yeah. 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 That's awesome. That's cool. Guys. I, I don't know how this happened, uh, uh, but, but we're running out of time. <laughs> uh, uh, in fact, we're, we're kind of almost out of time and, and that, breaks my heart because it feels like we're just now getting into the yeah and this and that and the other and uh, but holy crap there's already been some good stuff in here so so look let's let's do this uh, uh let's let's move to the to the last once around the table let's take one last spin around the table uh and and give give tim some final thoughts some things that you couldn't put out or did or inspired to but we didn't get around to in the, in the brainstorm but give him one last bit of advice and guidance to to see him through so we can write this bad boy uh uh, and, and fill his pockets with some literary gold. Ada, Ada, we'll start with you, ma'am. Uh, uh, <laughs> final, final thoughts for for Tim as we send him on his way. Um, uh, two, two, two things very different. Uh, one, I want to know what transportation methods this society has. Do they have horses? Do they have oxen? Do they not have horses? Is long distance travel really hard? Uh, do they have lots and lots of rivers so they can go everywhere on boats? Do they have practically no rivers so that long distance travel is really hard? When you look at pre-modern societies, the degree to which they can move from one place to another absolutely determines how quickly information travels, how quickly their cultures change, how quickly their political situations change, what wars are shaped like. Uh, if you work that out, you'll learn a lot more about what these battles were that put the king in power. Where did they happen? How far from the capital could they have been? Because it's all dependent on transportation. Okay. Um, all right. For the Just for the protagonist, I, I really do like this idea of her not realizing that her intelligence is her own intelligence and that mm. part of the story is her coming to you know, she can still be in fact in contact with this thing but she can attribute all of her really great ideas to contact with it and yeah. eventually have to come to learn no actually only a few of these things were it and a lot of the other things were <laughs> me uh, as I saved my life in this way nice That's yeah. Good, yeah yeah good good questions good, good and and questions that when answered will inform greatly the story that's being told that's awesome melanie what about you final thoughts for tim um yeah i find that um when i just look over the pitch and whatever i what continuously comes back to me is just why you know a- ask yourself why all the time why are these these old beings coming back to this place you know why do they have to negotiate make everything personal to each character um every single character has to have some goal and make sure that they have a motivation you know because they they need to have a reason why they have to get their goal otherwise you know they're going to lose something really pivotal to their lives things like that so i think that um if, if you keep 
digging and digging and digging deeper into the characters, um, asking yourself why they're doing every single action that they're doing, what the stakes are for each character, what their vulnerability is, uh, things like that. Um, I think that by digging that way, you'll, you'll get some, you'll hit some gold. (laughs) That is, that is absolutely the most important question any writer I think can ask of, of their characters. Why, why are you doing this? Absolutely. That's, that's good stuff. Um, Tim, holy crap. Uh, so much that I wanted to share. Um, several thoughts. Uh, one, uh, make sure there's a cost to the nobles for their power. Um, if you use your power too much, uh, uh, you start becoming an old one. Uh, or or you become savage and mutant and have to be put down. And there's a past of, of people who use their power too much going too far uh, and, and actually you know being turned upon by their fellow brethren uh, uh, for that. In fact, there may be a religion or two out there run by a deposed noble who is actually plotting to undo the nobility and take back his power. And he is a dark, dark religion. Um one one question that I wanted to ask and I didn't get a chance to is what happens when when Vin and Mig get the eggs? Uh, uh, yeah. Does the world crack open and we're doomed, or or something along those lines? And if they are of such great power, then why don't they just come in and crack open the world and find exactly. the eggs? You know, those, <laughs> those those are questions that that need to be answered. And I'm thinking that it's because uh, uh, they can't uh, because by the nature of their essence of their being, they're entities these eggs and even they know their mother's out here if this is their mother's corpse uh their mother is in the blood of these people they can't attack them it's no, their mother the eggs don't the eggs don't have to be material the eggs could be literally in the blood of people sure uh, yeah and, and so, the, so a person is oh that's a good idea yeah and and right? the, the eggs the eggs could be have have transformed into what is inside the blood of the nobles and they need to get the nobles together or to do something sure to extract it from them yeah. and and have mm-hmm. that belief that you know when you know you you reveal this is what they want aha and the reader and everybody in the story assumes holy crap they need to go to this place and get these things to do that and and if they get them then we're hosed but no all they do all they need is the, the, yeah because the egg of a god doesn't need to be a rock it can be a dna sequence or it can be an essence distributed between people heck it could be the yeah. answer to a mathematical equation sure yeah something that, that something only that we can't she even, can solve yeah. and the no, only yeah. way and then but they need to find the the source so they can have that baseline dna to know what to look for uh, uh, you know, going to the, I like the idea of that, that going to the egg place, but it's not to get the eggs, it's to get that, what do our, what do our siblings look like? What, what does mom's mm. kids look like? And then we can't do that unless we have a DNA sample or an essence bit or whatever. And then we can go and well, find our brothers <laughs> among the, the, the populace. So you can't kill them. You can't destroy the world. You'd be destroying your kinfolk. Yeah. One so. quick thing is that the theme, you, you're having trouble thinking of your theme. I think the theme could be found wherever the eggs are found. What do the eggs stand for? Where are they? What are they really? And then I think you can find your theme of the story from that. Yes, very much. It, it yeah. needs to be linked to that. And in fact, you know, as far as themes go, I think you know, Ada and Melanie, everybody's been putting out some great ideas here. Uh, it really comes down to the essence of power. Uh, uh, the exercising of power, the, the 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 control of the afterlife and the spiritual body of a culture, uh, uh, and and the impact that has on the the average Joe. We, we can't 
exist on these 30,000 foot concepts. It needs to be grounded in a brain. Uh, uh, so so whatever those, those stakes and those consequences are, she needs to be the vehicle for which that is resolved and explored. Uh, uh, so yeah, holy crap, so damn much. Tim, dude, here's the deal. <laughs> you write this thing, you put it out in the world as you have proven that you can do, oh, Knight of the Round Table. And when you come back, we'll make you a... I was going to say double Duke. Knight. A double knight, yes. <laughs> I was going to say a Duke, but maybe maybe we'll, we'll go with Count. We'll make you a Count, and then the third time will be a Duke. Fourth time, you can be the king of the round table. How about that? Whoa. <laughs> sure. Awesome. <laughs> Very that. cool. Very cool. Ada Power, ma'am, holy crap, this has been fabulous. Thank you so much for for bringing huh. your, your perception, your experience, your insight. You really just raised the level of this conversation. It's been a blast, ma'am. Thank you. My pleasure. It was a lot of fun. It's it a, was. I like Lovecraft, so that was a fun story to read. <laughs> oh, um, uh, one recommendation. Have you read Berserk? There's a manga called yes, Berserk. I've yeah. read all of Berserk. <laughs> I figured you had. <laughs> <laughs> Think about how carefully it does the world building of its religion and secondary religion, and how shocking it is when you start to find out whether those religions reflect real things in the world or not. You could do something yeah. like that. Ooh, see, reference. I did not consider Berserk in this context, but that's amazing. Yeah. And it all comes, it all comes full circle from the twenty minutes with through the brainstorm. This is this is coming together gorgeously. Melanie Matters, thank you so much. It has been a delight having you in in the co-pilot chair for this epic journey into storytelling, ma'am. You you acquitted yourself with with true true valor and metal. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. And friends, as long as we're doling out the gratitude, let's pass some out your way for hitting that play button. You know, without you, we're, we're just four people on a Skype line talking story, which is great and awesome. But we share this stuff so that you can get the fire and the spark that happened during that conversation. And if you're feeling that love, spread the word, pay it forward, blog about it, share a Facebook post or a tweet. Not enough people know about the awesomeness happening here. We need to spread the word. That would be awesome. And holy crap, I'm exhausted. <laughs> I always am after a roundtable recording. Uh, but thankfully, the, the, the temperature of the room has not elevated 10 degrees. But here's the thing, guys. In, in 14 days, we're going to come back and we're going to do it all over again. Because this is good exercise. It helps the, the brain muscle do its thing. Uh, we're going to have another guest host pouring wisdom in our ears. Another courageous guest writer putting out an awesome story seed that that we can then play around and create a forest from more roundtable goodness to be had by all. But it's 14 days and it's a long damn time. Melanie, help us out. What, what, what can our listeners do? I mean, that's 14 days. What can they do to make that time fly by? Well, normally I'd say, you know, go write a book, damn it. Well, hell yeah. But, you know, it's, it's a rough world out there these days. I would say just keep laughing. Find something to make you happy and, and go do it. That's good advice. Absolutely. Laughter laughter is the best medicine and, and it's good for the soul. So laugh. I agree. And I will tell you, friends, as I always do, you find what you're looking for. So look for that top shelf blue label goodness. Look for that <laughs> hidden present tucked in the back of the Christmas tree. Look for the awesomeness in the world. And if you look for it, you will find it. We will be back in 14 days. Until then, you guys stay cool, stay frothy, and stay awesome. And we will talk to you soon. Bye-bye. This episode of the Roundtable Podcast is copyright 2015 by Wonder Thing Studios. 
and is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means please don't sell it, but you can share it to your heart's content. You can even use portions of it in your own productions, as long as you release those productions under the same licensing terms and reference us as the source. Theme music for the Roundtable podcast was performed by the Hepcats of Brotown. Gary Gold, David LaBroyere, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you would like to be a guest writer or guest host, join in on the conversation or just learn more about us, visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast and on Twitter at writerspodcast. And you can always email us at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.